You take your Bibles, open up to Revelation chapter 7. We will finish, Lord willing, Revelation chapter 7. As I have meditated on the Lord's faithfulness, just even thinking of his faithfulness to his word, faithfulness to his promises, faithfulness to these two groups, these two great promises, Israel and to the nations. Um, It's interesting just even hearing that song, certain songs, certain things, you know, the way we are as human beings, certain smells and things, they kind of pull you back. And I vividly remember the first time I heard that hymn, and we sung it a lot in the college ministry, Crossroads at Grace Community Church. And so uh, I just had never sung songs like that before. Um, 1825 was when this hymn was written. But, you know, I just had sung a lot of stuff from the 90s. And haste thee on from grace to glory, armed by faith, winged by prayer. Heaven's eternal days before thee, God's own hand shall guide us there. Soon shall close thy earthly mission, soon shall pass thy pilgrim days. Hope shall change to glad fruition, faith to sight, and prayer to praise. And just you know, brings me back to thinking, all those years later, we're, we're singing that song, and obviously for well over almost 200 years, people have been singing this hymn, and uh, just of, of God's faithfulness, and just thankful for what he has done, and all that he has allowed. But let's go to him and ask his blessing as we go to his word. Father, thank you that you are faithful to your promises, that you are faithful to your people to seal, to protect, to deliver, to fulfill all the promises that we know find their way through the work of Christ. We just ask now that you would be honored as we look to Christ and we look to see what is being done even in this period of the future to be encouraged in the here and the now and to be motivated towards ministry and to redeem the time that has been given to us to live within your church age, to honor you and to be a witness for you to all people. We just ask this in your son's name. Amen. Well, it is human nature, I think, that we desire not to be forgotten. And we desire their events and people to not be forgotten. You've probably seen the slogan for 9-11 that comes up every September, September 9-11, of never forgotten, that we are to not forget what has happened there. And it's kind of memorialized throughout Scripture. You see similar things where they create memorials. They create, uh, we sing the song, you know, raise the Ebenezer, the, the stone to remember. We don't want certain things to be Forgotten. We don't want certain relationships to be forgotten. In fact, I find it interesting uh, thinking through, going through uh, premarital right now and a book I had read and um, in this marriage book they had brought out something just about the nature of human beings that I just always stuck with me. That there's just so interesting that in a world that looks at marriage as something more of a temporary contract that we kind of agree to as long as we both are happy and then if one of us is unhappy we can break that contract. That yet what we find in human relationships for those who believe in Christ and those who do not believe is a desire. A desire so ingrained in humanity that early on you find those junior high lovebirds and those high schoolers with a desire to express things. You know, I will love you forever. Some of you may be embarrassing. You have it written on your 
you know, yearbook from someone. And you go, I don't know if we knew what forever meant. But there is that urge to say that there's a nature of covenant love, human beings, that says, I want to say that. I want to express that. I want to be with that person. And I think it's expressing that eternal desire that Solomon says God placed eternity in our hearts. We don't want to be forgotten. I have little children, and I always think about it every once in a while. And my littlest one, if I got hit by a bus tomorrow, he's two. I don't have a lot of memories from two. And it's kind of devastating to think what he wouldn't really remember. All he'd remember is what others shared with him. There's that desire to not be forgotten. When we look to Scripture, we look to Revelation 7, there is this constant kind of running drumbeat of the promises of God being fulfilled, that, uh, being fulfilled that he does not forget. He doesn't forget any of his promises, even the ones that you and I may think are lesser because they don't apply to us. And that is how we like to operate very often, right? If it's not very specific to what my needs are and what is going on in my life, then I just kind of put it to the side. But as Revelation, these 22 chapters are bringing a close not only to all of redemptive uh, history, but but all of, of cosmic history is coming to a close. We're brought together, as we looked at last week, these questions of what about this? What about that? What about has gone on in all of the Old Testament? And we looked and we were reminded that, you know, when you lift up, you know, your New Testament, your Old Testament, and you start to go, one-third, two-thirds. There is a lot about, yes, the nation Israel, but because there's a lot about Yahweh and his people. And yes, there's a lot about not just Yahweh, but what Yahweh is going to do through Israel to bless those nations. And so I understand as we come to chapter 7 that what if we're reading through Scripture, the two big great promises, the great questions that should pop onto the stage here in this interlude with all of the devastation and all of the seals being broken and the end of the world basically having begun. Nothing's going to stop. The worthy lamb has broken seal one, two, three, four, five, six. The cosmic events are happening. That you're left with a question of, well, but what about some of these promises that have not been fulfilled? And this is a reminder that our God does not forget We may forget, but he does not forget any of his promises, and he is faithful to fulfill all of those promises. So we're going to see that again as we kind of review a little bit of chapter 7 through the end. But just giving you a, a framework for where we are in this period that was looking towards the future that we opened up into Revelation. We looked at chapter 1 and we saw that the pattern or the structure of Revelation revealed that this vision comes to John. In fact, if you flip back here, the Revelation chapter 1 verse 1 of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show to his slaves the things that must happen soon. He's writing John that things that Christ has revealed, the things that will happen soon. And then verse 19, he's commanded by Christ himself, write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after these things. And so we saw the things that are in the churches, the seven churches in chapters one or two and three transported to heaven to wondering, is this the time when the day of the Lord will be fulfilled? Even into chapter five, 
and you see the worship of the Lord. And even in chapter 6, when all the seals are broken, even the saints who cry out in verse 10, which we're going to see again this morning, the martyrs, they cry out in verse 10 of chapter 6, How long, O Master, holy and true, will you not judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? The answer is not that they are forgotten, just like you and I are not forgotten, but it is to say one of timing that it is God's purpose to accomplish a few things before he accomplishes their answer to their prayer. It says in verse 11, a white robe, which we're going to see white again, was given to each of them. And it was told to them that they should rest for a little while longer until the the number of their fellow slaves and their brothers who were to be killed, even as they had been, would be completed also. So they, in their own time frame of this tribulation, are waiting, and not too dissimilar as we wait for the Lord. Their waiting will not be as long as the church is waiting, because we've seen this sets into these promised events of the 70th week of Daniel in this final seven years where God is going to recreate the world that he has made. And he will, after a thousand years, he is saying he will, in verse 16, fulfill these promises. They will see very soon that he will fulfill, that they will no longer hunger nor thirst, nor the sun will beat down on them or heat, but God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And so we come to the wrath of the Lamb in chapter 6, the sixth seal being broken. We understand that there is this interlude, and by interlude in chapter 7, I just simply mean that there is a pause in the breaking of the seals. We have the four horsemen, seal one, two, three, four. We have the martyrs in chapter 5, and we have these cosmic events in uh, the sixth seal, and then a pause. That's all I mean by interlude, and not necessarily is this sequential, or is this happening throughout the seven-year period? Is this happening at the beginning? Some of that we're not told, but it is to say that it happens, and it has a purpose, and I think implication has of how are all of those people, how are all of God's promises in Matthew 24 of the world seeing and the world being evangelized going to come to happen, and I think it makes sense to understand here that these 144,000 will be sealed for a purpose to go out and to preach the word, to be the most effective evangelist that the world has ever seen. And so we saw last week the answer to the first question. What about the nation Israel? And then we're going to look here in a moment about what about redeemed Gentiles in the tribulation? Just as a reminder, what about Israel? Because we saw this storyline that all the way back into Genesis 3, which is before Abraham, before the nation Israel, there is something going on cosmically. There is something going on in the world in which God is saying, yes, it is broken through Adam, through his sin, but there is a promise that one day from the seed of Eve will come one who will crush the serpent's head. And we looked at the Abrahamic promise Genesis 12, Genesis 15, that through Abraham, all of the families of the earth will be blessed. And that there are promises that aren't just spiritual, but that do involve the world we live in. And that's where we're going to get to it. But fulfillment, understand what makes me, someone who is premillennial, is to say there is a time and a place where all of these promises happen, where the Lord is praised rightly on this earth. And we see that happening in that thousand year period to come. But it's a reminder to say very early, we looked at Deuteronomy chapter 4, we looked at 
Other places, Ezekiel 11, and we understand Jeremiah, that there was always a trajectory of Israel, that they were never going to fulfill their role in that time period. They were always going to turn, and they were going to rebel because of their nature. They're going to need a new heart and a new covenant. But that's the point, because it is not for their sake. It is for the Lord's sake, for his name's sake, Ezekiel 36. We saw in the just briefly looking minor prophets about God will judge the world and restore Israel. And that reality that God gave those promises to this nation, not when they were faithful, but when they were unfaithful, which I find rather comforting because he has given promises to the church and we are not always faithful, yet he is the faithful one. And so when you come to Romans 9 and you see Paul desperate for his people and then, of course, saying out in Romans 11 that one day all Israel will be saved. But back to Revelation 7, you see where does this come into play in this period of history? And somewhere along the way, this promise begins to be fulfilled by the sealing of these 144,000. I think it's important we look at the seal of the 144 because it's related to those who are sealed by the Lamb. That is, God seals his people. You and I are sealed, Ephesians says. We are sealed by his spirit. You look at saints in the Old Testament. They are set apart. Israel was set apart. They were distinct. Set apart very distinctly in the sign of the covenant in male circumcision also set out distinctively by all of their civic and their ceremonial laws. They looked different. They acted different. They lived different. And here you're going to see God's people set apart, sealed. Verse 2 of chapter 7, that an angel ascends from the rising of the sun, having the seal of the living God. And then he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels of whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying... Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the slaves of God on their forehead. And so it's north and south and east and west. And it's saying, wait, they are being sealed for a purpose, both for, in this case, they're going to be contrasted with the martyrs, but they're going to be sealed for protection and for a specific ministry that they are going to have because they will live through this tribulation. If you look to chapter 14, and you'll see their character and you'll see that they are there at the end. And they are sealed from every tribe in Israel. And if you weren't here last week, we noted that it's a little different than the other, some say that if there's 19 different lists, this list has Judah being first because now the Messiah comes from the ruling tribe of Judah, even though Reuben was the first son. He's listed second. And then Levi, who is never listed because he doesn't have land, is listed. And Dan is not. Could be because of Dan's idolatry and rebellion. And then even because of Joseph being listed instead of one of his sons, because Ephraim was also rebellious. You see Joseph in verse 8 as opposed to Ephraim. So there's a couple ideas of why it is there, but it's not uncommon to see different lists. And it's not uncommon. Then we get to the end of history and you're wondering, as we've seen different lists of tribes, well, What's the final one? And you have it here. 12,000 from every tribe sealed for a specific ministry in that time. And all for not their sake, but for 
the Lord's sake. And that's the importance of all of this. This is about the glory of the Lord and what he's doing to show that no one can say that it is something that they have done or their history or their works or their righteousness. No, it is his righteousness. It is his faithfulness. And how is that not better demonstrated than by looking at ones who he sealed and set apart who are unfaithful and then to bring them back and to say, they are my people. Why? Because I am faithful to my promises. And so we saw the answer to what about Israel is answered in the beginning here of this sealing of these 144,000. But then you're also left with all the destruction coming in the sixth seal and before the seventh seal comes. What else do we need to know? There's insight that'll come, I think, from the quote at the end from Isaiah because it's playing off of biblical language. And we see again this introduction of this phrase in verse 9 to answer the second question. What about redeemed Gentiles in the tribulation? That he says, after these things, next he sees, he looks, he says, and behold, a great multitude which no one could count from every nation, all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So we're transported back, chapters 4 and 5. They see the one sitting on the throne in heaven, and they see the Lamb as though slain. And they praise him and say, salvation belongs to our God. And the angels, verse 11, are standing around the throne, and the elders... And the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne, and they worshipped God, saying, Amen. The blessing, the glory, the, the wisdom, the thanksgiving, and the honor, and the power, and the strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And then one of the elders answered, saying to me, These clothed in the white robes, who are they? And from where have they come? wonder what, if you were there, what John, his response. I said to him, my Lord, I, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and they are washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. For this reason, they are before the throne of God and they serve him day and night in his sanctuary and who sits on the throne and will dwell over them. They will hunger no longer. They will thirst anymore, nor will the sun be down on them, nor any heat. For the Lamb at the center of the throne will shepherd them and guide them to the springs of the water of life. And God will wipe every tear from their eyes. You gotta love that picture. We don't have a lot of sheep shepherding, but just so you know, the, 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 the Lamb isn't the shepherd. It's gotta love the mix of imagery that it's the Lamb at the center of the throne who will shepherd them. But this answers that second question. This is about the nations. This is about those who believe. Will there be those who believe in the gospel if the church is raptured into heaven? Will there be conversion? Will there be people saved during this period? This is the answer to that question. It's not just Israel, and it never was. It goes back to the program, the church is gone, of Israel and the nations. And yes, Israel has a place and the nations have a place. And there will be those who are saved out of 
the nations. But they are not sealed in the same way. You have to contrast the two groups in the chapter 7, verses 1 through 8. You see that it is obviously Jews, 12 tribes of Israel. And here in verse 9, this is the great multitude, which no one could count, so that should encourage you. But Gentiles from all nations, every tribe, every tongue, every people group. And so in Israel, it's numbered here, 144,000. But with these that are before the throne, the martyred saints of the tribulation, he's saying there is no number. You, you can't count them. Those evangelists here, 144,000, are sealed on earth, but here the martyrs are standing in heaven, each with a distinct role to play. And you see, though, God will use Christ. He will use his gospel. He will use his word to shine forth that Abraham will be a blessing to all the nations, not just in our period, which is true through Christ and his gospel, but here throughout history when it's not just some nations or where we see that the gospel goes forth and there's challenge or there's rejection. This is something different where it'll go forth with great success in a way that you can't count them, but they're not sealed with protection. And so they, verse 9, will be standing before the throne, which is they're not on earth, right? They're in heaven, which is because they are there because they have been washed in the blood of the Lamb, verse 14. It is this whiteness that describes them. If you go back to Revelation chapter 1, it is Christ who is first mentioned, 1 verse 14, that his head and his hair were white like white wool. It is to say that he is pure. You think of any kind of stain on a white garment. In fact, I have white shirts and, you know, after a while, if my wife doesn't get to them, they start to go brown. They're washed, but right, they, they change color. This is the idea of bleaching white as wool, like snow when it first falls. Not like it looks out there right now. Described, and then the martyrs of the church era as well it is described as ones with white. Chapter 3, verse 4, and Sardis, you are few. Sardis, remember, is one, uh, the church described as the dead church, but there are some, he says, a few names in verse 4 of chapter 3, in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments. They will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will never erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. And the church of Laodicea, down in verse 18, that his advice to them is, I advise you, Buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may yourself become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourselves. And that the shame of your nakedness, your defilement, your sinfulness will not be manifested. 24 elders, chapter 4, verse 4. Around there were 24 thrones. And upon those thrones I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white garments. And then you see the martyrs in the fifth seal cry out, How long, O Master, holy and true, will you 
not judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. And a white robe, they say, was given to each of them. And it was told to them that they should rest for a little while longer until God gathers all of them together. Now, some look here and they see that connection of the whiteness, the white robe, and they bring it together and they look and they say, well, this must be the church. But I would say, if John wanted to call them the church, he knows the word because he used it all over seven times in chapters one through three. And he doesn't call them the church. Rather, he calls them, verse nine, every nation, tribes, peoples, and tongues. But they are saved through Christ and his blood, the same as the church. And so there is a relationship there, yes, but I think distinct. He refers to them in a very Old Testament way. The nations, the nations, the nations. And salvation will come to the nations through the Lamb. And so I will fulfill those promises. Especially as you look at Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. We'll look at a couple of those here before we're done this morning. But they just notice kind of the description of them. That they are set apart. They are singing to the Lord. And they are worshiping verses 10 through 12, singing praises to him along with those that are there, the four living creatures and the 24 elders, which we understand as the church. And the question that is asked of John, well, who are they? And it's hard to know if his response is, it's obvious, Lord, you know, or if he doesn't know. But maybe because he's seen the martyrs before that he, he thinks you know. But it's explained for our sake because we're not the ones seeing the vision. And how it's explained is to say these are the ones. This is also why I think you keep the distinction there between the church. Because it's saying very distinctively they're not ones in tribulation. So if you were to go back to chapter 1, verse 9. Chapter 1, verse 9. I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus. That is to say, John experienced suffering. He's exiled on this island of Patmos. But here, a technical term is used in verse 14 of chapter 7, that these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation. That's distinctive. These, these are distinctive from the church. And they are washed in their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb, which is a way of saying they will give their lives. Why? Because the cost of following the Lamb, for following Christ during this period, will cost them their lives. They, you go further into the book, you see the judgments. We've already seen the cosmic judgments. It will be a time period where it will not be as easy to say, I love Jesus. I follow Jesus. If you don't carry, if you're not sealed, and that's the contrast, right? You're not sealed by the Lamb, you're going to be sealed by the dragon, the lamb, the mark of the beast in that sense. And they will not be able to buy and not be able to sell. And they will face persecution to which we see parts in the world. The church is persecuted for sure in the world today. But this is something even more global, just like the cosmic events where it is great tribulation. And they may not even die from just martyrdom. They even may, as all the judgments come down and the judgment of sin, and they bear it in disease and death but they ultimately will be saved out of it, standing before the throne, singing praises to him because of the blood of the lamb, because Christ has shed his blood for them. 
And they're gonna be there and they're gonna be singing this song. And then here, verse 16 and 17, which is what I think is so helpful. It brings us back to understand what Revelation does so often, this language. The language of 12 tribes, that's not too hard to get. But this would be a little bit more of, I've seen this before and you need maybe some help with some cross references. Or if you've been reading Isaiah, you go, I've, I've, I've heard this. And the context is extremely helpful. Flip to Isaiah 49. Because it matters where, he's not just pulling this randomly. He can pull any promise of God from the scriptures. He can pull uh, anything in the sense that he could have pulled from this, but he didn't. Any error, but he pulls from a context of chapter 49. And he takes the language, the visuals, that they will not thirst, nor will they get tired. And for those of you who have headings, I would think my Bible has the heading in chapter 49. It's similar to mine. It says, I will make you a light of the nations. And so it begins in 49. Listen to me, O coastlands. And in Isaiah, coastlands is the Gentiles. It's just another term for the Gentiles. So listen to me, nations. Every tribe, every tongue, every people. And pay attention, you peoples from afar. Yahweh called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He made my name to be remembered. He has set my mouth like a sharp sword in the shadow of his hand. He has concealed me and he has also set me as a select arrow. He has hidden me in his quiver. And he has said to me, you are my servant Israel. In whom I will show forth my beautiful glory. But I said, I have toiled in vain. I have spent my night or my might for nothing and vanity. Yet surely the justice due to me is with Yahweh and my reward is with my God. So now says Yahweh, who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to return Jacob back to me so that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am glorified in the sight of Yahweh and my God is my strength. He says, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob, which context of Revelation 7, we just saw the 12 tribes of Jacob, to cause the persevered ones of Israel to return. He says, it's too little of a thing to seal 144,000. It's too little of a thing to save all of Israel, Romans 11. In fact, what will happen, end of verse 6, so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. All nations, all people, all tribes. Thus says Yahweh, the Redeemer of Israel and His Holy One, to the despised one, to the abhorred but one abhorred by the nations, to the servant of the rulers, kings will see and rise, princes will also bow down, because Yahweh who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel whom has chosen you. Thus says Yahweh, in an acceptable time I have answered you, in a day of salvation I have helped you, and I will guard you and give you for a covenant of the people to establish the land, to make them inherit the desolate inheritance, saying to those who are bound, go forth. To those who are in darkness, show yourself. Along the roads they will feed and their pasture will be on all their heights. And this is where we get the language from Revelation chapter 7. They will not hunger or thirst, nor will the scorching heat or sun strike them down. But for he who has compassion on them will guide them and will lead them to springs of water. 
He doesn't quote it exactly, but he's saying the same. It's the same imagery. The lamb that I've been talking about will lead you, shepherd you all the days of your life. And I will set all my mountains as a road and my highways will be raised up. Behold, there, these will come from afar. And behold, these will come from the north, from the west, and these from the land of Sinem, which most people believe is to the east. Shout for joy, O heavens, and rejoice, O earth. Break forth into joyful shouting, O mountains, for Yahweh has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. If you look at Isaiah and you read, you start to see that toggle between there's blessing to Israel, there's a return, there's a remnant that will remain, but it is for the Yahweh's sake that it will bless not just Israel, but it will bless the nations. And even they will one day come from all north and east and west. And so you go, oh, He's talking Isaiah's language. He's talking about the nations and he's talking about Israel and their purpose in all of redemptive history. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He uses similar Old Testament imagery. He who comes to me will never hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. The church believes this same promise. This is true. But there is fulfillment in history that is future, that is coming, where you will see it displayed on the earth. It's not as if we just get brought to heaven and everything is spiritual. Everything just goes kind of blank. No, there's real history that God will reign over coming into the future. Go back to Isaiah a little bit, uh, 24. Because it's not only that he will shepherd them, but it's also this phrase, which is a beautiful phrase, that he'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. And looking at chapter 25, and as I said, a lot of Isaiah, you're toggling between judgment and salvation. But here is salvation. And it's in the context, chapter 24, of judgment. And I would even argue 24 is talking about global, life-ending, tribulation, judgment. Well, why does John, or in this case, the one speaking to John, why does the angel bring out the language of Isaiah 25? Because it has a background to Isaiah 24, because Isaiah 24 is talking about the tribulation, judgment that is coming. And then in 25, what comes with the judgment, though? is accompanied by salvation. Verse 25, or chapter 25. Oh, Yahweh, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will give thanks to your name for you have worked wonders. Councils formed long ago with perfect faithfulness. For you have made a city into a heap, a fortified town into a ruin, a palace of strangers and a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, a strong people will glorify you. Towns of ruthless nations will fear you. For you have been a strong defense for the poor, strong defense for the needy and distress, a refuge from the storm, a shade from the heat for the breath of the ruthless is like a rain storm against a wall. Like a heat in a dry land, you subdue the rumblings of strangers. Like heat by the shadow of a cloud, the song of the ruthless is silence. Why? Because salvation comes through the Lord. It says, verse six, that Yahweh of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain. A banquet of aged wine, choice pieces with marrow and refined aged wine. So again, all peoples, not just Israel. And on this mountain, he will swallow up the covering, which is over all peoples. He will swallow up, that is 
death, verse 8, he will swallow up death for all time, and the Lord will wipe away all from, will wipe tears away from all faces, and he will remove the reproach of his people. So again, toggling, all people, but he will remove the reproach from Israel, he says, from the earth, for Yahweh has spoken. And it will be said in that day, so in that day in Revelation 7, behold, this is our God in whom we have hoped that he would save us. This is Yahweh in whom we have hoped. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. Revelation 7 stands as evidence that it's not just the spiritual salvation of the church, not just being redeemed from sin, which is true and good and right. And we see it all over the New Testament. Christ has come to pay for the sin of his people, that we might have forgiveness in him, that we might put our faith and trust, belief solely in him. But there is something going on cosmically that Revelation points to here that Isaiah says is still coming, that has not happened in the first advent of Christ, but will happen in the second advent. He will fulfill his promises to Israel and his people, his namesake and that special relationship. But he also saying, I will fulfill them to the nations. And so the angel brings back and says, excuse me, the elders say back and say back the scriptures of Isaiah pointing to this reality that it will happen, that salvation will come from the Lord, that he will fulfill, that he will not forget And so we're reminded of God's faithfulness to his church, his faithfulness to Israel, and his faithfulness to the nations. He is faithful to fulfill his promise. He's not going to share his glory with anyone. He's not going to share his glory with the church. He's not going to share his glory with the nation of Israel. He's not going to share his glory with the global nations. But he's going to demonstrate through the salvation of, of his church, demonstrate salvation of a disobedient Israel. And you're going to praise him because you're going to see him use that tool as unlikely it is to be the tool of blessing and salvation to all peoples, to all nations. And I believe the church will be there in heaven to see it and praise him for it. It was always the plan that it would be through Israel to bless all the nations. The Lord is not one to forget. You and I have short memories. I might forget what you tell me after this service, but the Lord will not forget and he will not forget his people. And what that means for you and I that's encouraging is he will not forget you and he will not forget me. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the reminder that we are given here that you will not forget. You will not forget your promises and you will not forget us. We might be like these ones who wait, but we know it is not a matter of if, only a matter of when. Thank you that we can hold on to you when we need strength and when we need hope, when we don't understand, because here we find hope in a sovereign, eternal God who has a purpose and a direction of all all of history and all of time. And we can trust you that you will hold all things together and that you are worthy to be praised. We ask this in your son's name. Amen.